We want to turn this evening to the book of Exodus once again and to chapter 9 of the book of Exodus. We're in the middle of our consideration of the plagues, the ten plagues through which God delivered Israel from the land of Egypt. We're at plagues 5, 6, and 7. I'm going to read the whole chapter. We're taking this chapter by chapter, not plague by plague, nor even groups of plagues by group of plagues, so we could do that. And though we could preach a hundred sermons on each chapter, we could do that. We're not going to. We want to get the sense, not only of the trees, but of the forest, this wonderful and glorious history of Israel's redemption and of ours. Exodus chapter 9, we'll read the whole chapter, follow closely. I'm going especially to focus on verses 14 through 16 as a sort of swing text from which we can derive perspective on these plagues here and also in the other chapters. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and tell him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the oxen, and on the sheep, a very severe pestilence. And the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. Then the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died But of the livestock of the children of Israel, not one died. Then Pharaoh sent, and indeed not even one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of ashes from a furnace, and let Moses scatter it toward the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh. And it will become fine dust in all the land of Egypt, And it will cause boils that break out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Then they took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses scattered them toward heaven. And they caused boils that break out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians and on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh And he did not heed them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now if... If I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. As yet, you exalt yourself against my people, in that you will not let them go. Behold, tomorrow about this time, I will cause very heavy hail to rain down, such as has not been in Egypt since its founding until now. Therefore send now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field, for the hail shall come down on every man and every animal which is found in the field and is not brought home, and they shall die. He who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses." But he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man, on beast, and on every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire darted to the ground. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt, so there was hail, and fire mingled with the hail, so, that, so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt. 
since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I've sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and my people and I are wicked. Entreat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thundering and hail, for it is enough. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. So Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail. And you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. Now the flax and the barley were struck, but the, for the barley was in the head and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the spelt were not struck, for they are late crops. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord. And the thunder and hail ceased, and the rain was not poured on the earth. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard, neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken by Moses. Thus far we read this account of the plagues of Egypt and of the God who was glorified in these plagues, Exodus chapter 9. And again, this focus is what we want to, to have, the, the focus of verses 14 through 16, where God is said, says through Moses, let my people go that they may serve me for at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. If I'd stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. So we have here, beloved, this amazing account of the progression of the judgments of God upon, Israel, upon the Egyptians for not letting the people of God go and go to worship him. The text is a record of the fifth through seventh plagues of the ten, and we are reminded of the fact that these are Typical plagues of judgments of God and the whole, uh, the whole scene, the whole history here is, is called typical in the Bible. That is, it's a picture of the real redemption and exodus we have in Jesus. Egypt is a place that depicts the land of sin, the sin in which we're all born. And Pharaoh is a type of the devil and deliverance we know through Moses is a picture of deliverance through the intercessory uh, advocate, even Jesus Christ. And so the Exodus itself is a picture of our salvation, these things we know. The most important thing we want to focus on at this time is that these wonders and this deliverance itself and the judgment is all for the glory of God. In fact, God says, I could have cut you off, Pharaoh, in the text we just read, that passage, but I want, wanted to show my glory in the earth. So for this purpose, I've raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. It's the purpose of God that's revealed, that he might be glorified in these plagues, in this history, and also in us. And this is what we want to take home from this. The theology of the passage, the truth of God always revealed in Jesus and then also what this means now that we represent God and so that the whole world may glorify God so that they see in us a God who is like no other God, a Savior who's like no other Savior, a truth that lives in a holy people who is called to be holy because they're the people of the Exodus. Holy, yes, we're called to be and happy as well as we walk in the fear and love of God in this world, declaring his great name and praise. 
So let's consider more plagues, more glory to God, or more wonders, more glory to God. We want to consider that, that glory of God, first of all. That's, that's this perspective we're going to take here. The glory of God that is purposed in this whole, um, in this whole account of the plagues, and especially, as God indicates here, as the judgments get more severe, leading to the judgment and the slaying of the firstborn of man and beast in the tenth plague, which is also the salvation of the people of God through the lamb that's slain and the Passover that he is. And so we want to consider that glory of God. Secondly, just how that happens. Now we're going to get into a little more detail about these plagues, these three, and what's going on here. And then finally what this is for us and what it is in all the world. And this is a recurring theme of this chapter. It just pops out at me, and it should to us, that God is doing something here so people know, they really know that there is a God over Israel, over the whole world, and over all the gods of Egypt and of any nation that worships idols. So we want to consider God's purpose and that is to show his power in Pharaoh and his name in all the earth so that he can be exalted. Now, this is the same purpose of God in everything. And that's why I bring this out here. Exodus is a book of the exodus of the people of God. And it's a book, of course, of this great and glorious God of the exodus, Let's not be lost in, in the great things that happen here and all the plagues that the children are eager to learn about and how did this happen and so on. Remember God who's being revealed here. This is the message of the whole of the Bible. This is the message of the theology of those whose theology is, is worth anything. Theology of God, the teaching of God is what churches should teach and people should live by. The great God, whom we worship. And Jesus said to us in, in our prayer, when you pray, pray to your Father in heaven. And the first petition is what? Hallowed be your name. And so we're all about glorifying God exactly because he is. And Jesus was on earth and is in heaven and will be when he comes again. He will be about glorifying the Father. Well, I gathered together some texts just to point out to you this common theme here, and, and I don't want to, to minimize the importance of it, don't want to elaborate too much on it, but just some texts here. Remember, we're, we're, we're seeking to bring out the, the truth of the passage in verses 14 through 17, right in the middle of this chapter, where it is said that God is going to send the plagues of himself to the very heart of Pharaoh and his servants and his people, that you may know there is none like me in all the earth, that there's none like my power, there's none like my grace, there's none like my wisdom, there's none. God is God. Well, that's what the rest of the Bible teaches. Look at Exodus 15. I'm going to list about 10 or so texts here. Exodus 15, 11. What they sing on the other side of the Red Sea. Who is like you? Same word as in our text, that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. 2 Samuel 7, verse 22. For this reason you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. First Kings eight twenty three. he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. First Chronicles 17, 20, O Lord, there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Second Chronicles 6.14, he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there's no God like you. 
in heaven or in earth, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Psalm 35, verse 10. All my bones will say, Lord, who is like you. Do all your bones say that? Who delivers the afflicted from him who is too strong for him, and the afflicted and the needy from him who robs him, who is like you, O Lord. Psalm 71, 19. For your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you. Psalm 86, verse 8, there is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. Psalm 89, verse 8, O Lord, God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. Isaiah 45, verse 7, who is like me, God says, let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. That's just the Old Testament. That's just a snippet of all of the prophets and the, and the, the kings and the priests and the nation that glorifies God. We know from the New Testament that God's glory is revealed in Jesus. He's the brightness and the glory of God, the greatness of God. There's no God like the God who is Jesus and who comes into this earth as Messiah, God incarnate, Emmanuel, so that beholding him we behold the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and true. Glory is greatness, shining greatness, shining in the sun, the sun shining, the glory of God. Romans 11 speaks to us doctrinally of the God of whom and to whom and unto whom are all things, meaning everything serves the glory of God, even the rejection of the Israelites as the nation of God and the acceptation of the Gentiles for the sake of God's covenant and glory in all the world. Indeed, heaven's theme is the glorification of God. The saying to one another, God is great, the singing of this with all the heart, all the bones, all of the glorification being of the children of God. And so that they say, and we shall say forever, blessing and glory and honor to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And that reminds us that all of the glory of God is wrapped up in Jesus and ought to be by us who contemplate these things of the great God. Now, now, that, therefore, is the theme here. It is to be expected, and it is uh, something that Israel is to know and to rehearse to the children as they rehearse these plagues. The great wonders of the plagues, they would say to the children, are all about the wonder of the greatness of God that now we know. As we'll see, there is this wonderful intelligence that people are given at this time in this progression intensity this intensification of plagues so that it sticks with them and dear hearer i pray that in this sermon the glory of god will stick with you purposes to glorify god will stick with you and you will come away from having heard of the glory of God in these plagues and in Jesus so that you are more and more a God-glorifier. You live for him. You pray in his name and you magnify him for answers to prayers, for all of his providences, for the cross of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the life that's now imparted to you and the justification that is imputed to you so that there's no condemnation for you through the glory of of God. So now, how does this occur? This is my second point. How does this occur? I have about seven ways. Seven ways. Well, first of all, I want to rehearse that this is through these plagues. God is glorified in the plagues. And just to review what those plagues are, the fifth plague, which begins about verse 6, is God sending on the livestock of Egypt death, a grievous pestilence. The King James has a murrain, whatever that is, but something that was terrible. 
and that decimated the cattle of the Israelites. And then the sixth plague was boils on man and beast. So you see here in the fifth plague, there's attack on the property of the Egyptians. And now there's an attack not only on the property in the sixth plague, but on the persons of the Egyptians. And at this time in the sixth plague, the magicians themselves are struck. And so that um, there's, there's boils on the magicians, verse 11. And Timothy t- tells us that they could not stand before God at this point. Having heard from them in a while, they shut up because they couldn't imitate the plagues that they could imitate at first. And now, apparently, they had been persisting in their opposition to Moses. And now the plague strikes them of boils on man and beast, and they are struck down and made a laughing stock before all the people. So this is this progress here, disease on the cows and the cattle, the livestock, plague five. Then there's boils and terrible sores on man and beast so that it kills people and kills beasts, even whatever beasts were left. And then there's the hail and the fire and the rain that came down uh, in the seventh plague. And so we have these ways, that uh, these plagues, and now we speak of the seven ways that God is throwing through these plagues how he is glorious. Number one, he's showing that he's above everything. We've seen that before in the first plagues when God turned the Nile into blood, and when he sent frogs, and then when he sent lice out of the dust, and then when he sent... Uh, the the um, the uh, locusts or so on the, the excuse me the flies, but now also in this diseases upon the cows and the cattle and the livestock and the people themselves and in the hail he's showing he is God, he's above creation. This is certainly how he's glorified here, not the gods, but God is above creation. Second thing, of course, is he's showing he's above the gods, the God of the cows is Hathor in the Egyptians. They had a god. It was a cow god. Isn't that silly, children? They make a cow a god? Well, apparently this, this god was a female representative of the cows, and the cows became sacred because of that, and they needed cows for milk and so on. But the cows themselves were sacred, and so that... There was this example here of heathen worshiping the creature rather than the creator in the hopes that they would have um, meat to to eat and and, uh, milk to drink and and whatever else they could have to further their life. One of the the gods um, that might be being attacked in the seventh plague with regard to the, the, or the sixth plague with regard to the boils on man and beast which struck the magicians was Imhotep, that's what the scholars say, was the medicine god. The fact that this struck the magicians who were supposed to be closest to the gods and to have their zany medicine to heal things means that they were powerless. The gods and the god Imhotep, as well as Hathor, the cow god, they were being attacked here. And we've seen that this is what God is doing in all the plagues, and this he does now, in, in, in a big-time sort of way, he's, he's assaulting the gods and making the, now them, these gods who render the worship of the gods, defenseless. They're being attacked in their property, in their pocketbook. The livestock are being taken away. Decimated is the land becoming. And then they're being attacked in their own bodies, in their, their bodies, they're dying. Not the land of Goshen is afflicted, but the rest of the land of Egypt is. And then when the hail comes, God is showing that he's above the hail and above the gods of the sun and the moon and the stars and wherever they think the hail comes from, so that there's no recourse for them in the Egyptians. They have no resources anymore. They're being wiped out as a country and no recourse, religiously speaking. They can't bow to the Nile River anymore because that simply turns to blood at the hand of this God who's called Jehovah. 
They can't find in their Lord of the Flies, Beelzebub, any, any, any recourse and any comfort because God is over the flies as God of Israel. And our cows, those sacred things, they don't seem to be sacred anymore because there's this God who is being glorified here and they're finding this out by sending their gods and sending the, the objects of their gods, the flies and their murrains and pestilences upon the very people who worship them. God is saying he's above creation, above the gods of the creation, and he's above also Pharaoh and the magicians. That's what he's showing once again here. Pharaoh may be resistant. He may be uh, not letting the people go. It may not seem like the people of God are ever going to get anywhere, though they will. But God is showing that he's over Pharaoh. And here he's showing that he's over Pharaoh once again in hardening his heart. Look at that in verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not heed them. He didn't heed the plagues and so on, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. And over and over we read the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. But this time is the first time in this hardening thing where God is said to do it. We've talked about this before some 18 times in this narrative in Exodus, it's said that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Sometimes it says simply that his heart was hardened. Other times it says that he hardened his heart. But here it says that God, the Lord, hardened the heart of Pharaoh. There was a judgment here. Now, people have debated Calvinists, Arminians, and so on, you know, how, you know, this, this idea that God, the Lord, would harden somebody's heart so that they could not repent even if they wanted to. And they've wondered, now, how can this be fair of God to harden anybody's heart, take away their free will big time, so that all they are is like a rock. And so that Moses says, let my people go, and they don't even hear because they're so adamant, they're so rock-like, they're so hard. But the fact is, God is saying he's sovereign, and he's the judge, the just judge. What he's showing here is that he is this God who works so that when people resist him over and over and over again, he is the, is the God who gives them over to their own resistance, he gives them over to their own sins. He says, so, you're going to reject me? You're going to be a, a drunkard? I'm going to give you over to your drunkenness. You're resisting me. You're going to be this or that? I'm going to give you over to your sins. This is God's judgment. He's not the author of the sin, but he's the, certainly the one who's the judge over the sin. And the outcome is terrible. Uh, so very often people who are hardened in their hearts, they, they can never be unhardened. This is the way that God casts people even to hell. And so Pharaoh and the magicians as well, they are shown to be under God and plagued by God. And so in this... God shows he is just. He is the judge. That's the second thing. He's above all. And again, just to, to mention this, he is just in this judgment. He is absolutely just. You don't find anything like the equal opportunity here that people are wanting and craving in America. You find a distinction even that God makes justly between his people in Goshen and the rest of the place of Egypt. God is just in doing this, and he's hardening Pharaoh and the people in these plagues. In fact, Romans 9 is a divine New Testament commentary on this whole history, even and especially in chapter 9 of, of Exodus. Romans 9 says, What shall we say then? Verse 14, Is there unrighteousness with God? It's speaking of predestination. God chooses Jacob and loves Jacob, and he hates Esau even before they're born. They had never done any good or evil. But now this, is there unrighteousness with God because that's how he works? Chooses some and not others? Certainly not, the Bible says. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and uh, I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion, so then it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. 
Then verse 17. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. We just read that. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and then this, and whom he wills, he hardens. The infallible word of God, Old and New Testament, the Lord hardens sinners. And then goes on to speak of the fount of this, and that is the fact that God makes some to be vessels of dishonor. He's the potter. He makes certain pots to be vessels of of dishonor so that they will be destroyed, and this will be the magnification of his power. But others he makes to be vessels of honor, and they will be for the magnification of his grace. And the whole point of Romans 9 is the sovereignty of God. He does what he will. He's just. He's merciful as he will show his justice and his mercy. This is what is shown in our text and in this history of the Exodus. God is above all. He's the just judge. And thirdly, he's the God of distinguishing mercy. We read of this in chapter 8 and 22 and 23. God says there, I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. And we remember that after the second plague, I think it was, maybe the third, God said, now Israel itself, you're not even going to have to go through the plagues. The rest of these, you're going to have a wall around you. And the rest of the land of Egypt, they're going to suffer the plagues, but not you. So God does this here. And he shows over and over again, in chapter 9, verse 4 through 7, for example, that there will be a difference. The Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel, the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. Pharaoh is even so intrigued by this, he goes and sends, in verse 7, and indeed not even one of the livestock of Israelites was dead. Then none of the Israelites themselves died, and the hail didn't hit their land, and the darkness was not for them. There was light on in their houses, and of course the Lord passed over them in the final plague of the killing of the firstborns. This is God's distinguishing mercy. And in verse uh, chapter 8, where God says, I will make a difference between you and your people, and in chapter 9, where he says that he will not plague the Israelites like the Egyptians, is a word called pala that is used for wonders. Fearfully and wonderfully made and distinctly made, Psalm 139, says the psalmist. So here there's a wonder going on, a wonder of mercy when God says, there will be judgment upon certain ones, the Egyptian and Pharaoh and his servants, and also there will be mercy upon others, my people the people of my covenant. This is according to my election of them, my promise to them and to Abraham. And this, the other, the purpose of God to harden is according to his eternal decree to reprobate some in the way of their evil and of their hardening their hearts. He gives them over to their sins. So this is God's purpose here. And then we want to focus on the fact, in number four of our purposes here in these plagues, that it is the purposes of God that are being accomplished. He says in verse 14, At this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people, that, in order that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. And so, verse 16, indeed, for this purpose I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you, my name may be declared in all the earth. Beloved, it is even the case that God continues in these plagues, all ten of them, and will not destroy Pharaoh and Egypt too soon, so that there will be just enough time and just enough way for God to show he really means something here. He has purposes he's accomplishing here. He's this God who's intentional. He's always intentional, unlike us who just do things sometimes on a whim or because we have a craving for this or that. 
He has these intentions, these purposes that he has determined before the foundation of the world. And now they're coming to pass. For this purpose, I've raised you up. For this purpose, I'm holding off doing this. And for this purpose, I'm sending plagues now to your heart. So the God of sovereignty and of decree, who works everything according to the counsel of his good pleasure, is being revealed here. That's how he's being glorified. See, other than the gods, who are no gods, who have no purposes, there is a God who has purposes. He's a personal God. And his purpose is to magnify himself in all the world, as we are seeing. And then fifthly, this salvation in Jesus Christ. This is being typified here. This we've seen throughout. God is showing his glory through Moses, the intercessor, the picture of Jesus. Moses in the wilderness will try to stand in the gap between God and the people because God is threatening to exterminate the people and establish a kingdom with Moses and not the people anymore because it's as if God is sick of the people. Moses says, no, they're yours, and you've pledged yourself to them. And he's speaking, of course, uh, anthropomorphically and describing God in human terms, but he's a real go-between, is Moses, just like Jesus, just like Jesus. And the only reason that Israel is Israel over there, protected by the plagues and especially by the wrath of God, from the wrath of God and from the Egyptians, is because of God's distinguishing them in Christ. They're chosen in Christ. And though they be sinful and rather Egyptian at this point, they're just like the Egyptians. They're so sinful, they're worshiping their gods, yet God sees no iniquity in them. They're his people. And he will say in the Exodus, this is my son. Let my son go. And this is the beauty of the gospel, beloved. We're set aside. And it's nothing of ourselves that causes God to set us aside. But it's his mercy in Christ that makes all the difference. And you need to know that tonight, poor sinner. The difference between you and hell and you and those who go to hell is the mercy of Jesus. It's the mercy of Jesus. We're to trust in this mercy and to know this mercy increasingly in our lives. This will be brought out, of course, in the wonder of wonders, that last plague, and the only way that Israel is spared the judgment of its power and might being cut off in the generations, the slaying of the firstborn, is through the blood of the Lamb. That's Jesus. Sixthly, there's the knowledge of God. The people of God here are, <clears throat> uh, and, and all of Egypt, in fact, are given this display of the might of God that you may know verse 14, that there is none like me on all the earth. In verse 16, indeed for this purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. This knowledge of God and that he is God is seen here. This is the point of all the plagues. People are now here told Clearly, there is a God who's above all the other gods. Cannot deny him. Harden your heart, you may, Pharaoh, but I am teaching you that I am God in a big way. Get the message. This is the truth. God is God. In chapter 18, verse 11 of Exodus, it's striking. Even Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, because um, Israel is delivered, uh, has this doxology to say, Exodus 18.10, Blessed be the Lord who's delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know the Lord, that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. Jethro, 
brought to this great knowledge of God by God in the plagues, showing he's God, so that he knew now God is above all the other gods. Amazing. Rahab the harlot would speak of the fact to the spies that the whole people was trembling, Joshua 2, verses 9 through 11. And this is because God showed he's really God in the exodus of the people, the overthrow of their gods and of Pharaoh. But then we are taught in Exodus chapter 10 that this whole narrative, the first two verses, was for this purpose. The Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I've hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son the mighty things I've done in Egypt and my signs which I've done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. You see, there's a lesson here. There's biblical pedagogy, teaching, of the main thing of all of God's revelation. I am God, and there is none else. Don't you hear it? Pow! Here's the plagues. Crash comes the hail. Soon will be the locusts, then the darkness, and then that slaying of the firstborn and the sparing of Israel by the Passover lamb's blood poured out upon the doorposts. The goal of God in all history, that the people know that there is a God. That's the sixth point. The seventh is that the people of the Exodus may be formed. There is this amazing revelation here of salvation so that this people know, we all know, but that so a certain people knows and is delivered. Their faith is worked. God delivers them by a mighty hand, and he also works in faith, faith in their hearts so that they're God's people. There's a people of the Exodus that's formed not only in this, but in us. This is the miracle of the gospel of the word here. This word is a picture of redemption. It is brought out in the Old Testament as the grand picture of everything that has to do with your being saved from your sins, from the bondage of Egypt, the condemnation of God. Everything that has to do with the salvation of you and your children so that you as a family unit and you as a people of God, a church of Jesus Christ, it's taught right here. This is the Bible. The crucifixion of Jesus, taught right here. The shedding of the blood, the powers of God, his moving heaven and earth, commanding little things and great, hardening people and saving others so that his glory is known in their salvation. This is the gospel. Believe that, beloved. Believe that and hear this history of the Exodus and be glad. Be glad because God has separated you from his wrath. To be sure, sometimes we experience plagues or things that to us appear like plagues. It could just be something that's an inconvenience, but to us is an irritation and a plague sort of thing. It's so persistent. We can have health problems. We can have problems in the family, problems in the church, problems in the world, problems with the neighbor, and so on. And we all experience, as those who share humanity, the the plagues of viruses and the plagues of all of these interminable and oppressive government regulations. We're all a part of this. Well, beloved, be glad that though we're not spared some of these things, we are spared the wrath of God, and this is what we're supposed to be seeing here. The greater thing, the greatest thing, to be spared the wrath of God, to be God's people by his mercy, and to be his happy people. This is our wonderful, wonderful delight. Besides that, we're to be sanctified here. The Egyptians had gotten into the skin of the Israelites. It tempted them. And we read in the Exodus that this people that was delivered and they, they sang at the shores of the Red Sea, glad for the deliverance soon, they become the idolaters they were by nature and by their imitation of Egypt. 
So they worship the cows. They worship the cows. They desire the pleasures of sin and the sin and its pleasures of the leeks and the garlics and that lifestyle of being in Egypt and not having to serve anyone but Pharaoh as if serving God was oppressive. So they're not content with manna, that's Christ. They're not content with the rock and the water that comes out of the rock, and that's Christ. They're not content with God and fellowship with him, and that's through Christ. They want Egypt. But, beloved, we're called to be sanctified. Having been taken out of Egypt, out of sin, now God works in us to take the Egypt out of us. You see that? Taken out of Egypt is not enough. Egypt has to be taken out of us. There's still sin remains. Be holy. That's how we show our thanksgiving. That's how we show that we are God's people. We're holy and we're humble and we need to be warned. And I want to leave you with this, beloved. We need to be warned. There is much of Egypt today all over the place. You know, what's happened, the fulfillment of all things in Jesus has meant that the church has gone international. The church is not just the Jews, and it never will be just the Jews anymore. We are the Israel of God by the grace of God, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You have any dispensationalist leanings? That passage blows the dispensationalist leanings out of the water. For it says there that we are the people of God, the holy nation, the peculiar priesthood that we should show forth the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness, Egypt, into his marvelous light. But having said that, the church is now from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Well, so is Egypt. And so though we're not in the Middle East, in Egypt there on the shores of the Mediterranean and the Nile River and so on, we're in this world that is Egyptian, Babylonian, whatever you want to call it. And there are not pharaohs anymore, maybe, but there are pharaoh-like people. And I would suggest to you that they are all in authority who are acting to hold us in bondage. Not just governors and so on, but also those in authority in this culture that rule the airwaves. Those in places of power, whether they have authority or not, even from God but they would rule us and keep us Egyptian-like. And so we're delivered out of Egypt. We're God's people by the grace of God. Nevertheless, Egypt is slow coming out of us because we like this. Egypt is very tempting. And it is tempting to listen to Egypt and to, to go after Egypt. And you see, this is the way of the Antichrist. Beware, people of God, beware And from the ninth chapter of the Exodus, where God is said to be glorified, especially beware, because we would give God the glory in being his separate people. But the the way of the Antichrist, you see, is deception. Just like Pharaoh, deceitful in all his ways, and the devil, deceitful in all his ways. He wants to keep us. He wants to keep us in Egypt and Egypt in us so that we may go, and we may say we're Christians, but after all, Just don't go and serve God. You can go and serve God, maybe, but also us and also the world. You can be in fellowship with the people of God, but remember us, your comrades. Remember us and come to our bars and come to our movies and and learn what we do and battle the same things that we do. Beloved, are we just like that? Beware of the way of hardening. And that can happen even to Christians. We can be hard, cool, cool to the things of true 100% Christianity, of being all in. We're just half in. We develop habits. Friends we latch on to who are not Christ's, we just need these companions. And pretty soon, the things of God who's great, they're not much to us anymore. And the things of man who's not so great, we're we're settling with that. 
And the things that give us creature comforts and make us feel good, we, we settle with that. Because life is hard, and, and I give my money to the church, and I come maybe once, maybe twice, and the elders are satisfied with that and so on. But God is not the center. And we become hard and hard and harder. And then pretty soon we're pushing away God and we push back when people say, hey, you're wrong, you're out of the way, come back. You don't like that. Listen to God. See, the Antichrist is creeping up and he has a spiritual focus. He has this, this political focus. He's going to affect the pocketbook. He's going to affect the soul. He's going to speak to the heart and harden the heart if he can. And all the while, God is speaking to our hearts and saying, come out from among them. Be not unequally yoked with them. So be warned. Be warned, beloved. And let all the world know that there is a God who is most glorious in your being holy and happy with that. People of the Exodus, are you? Are you? Positively and thankfully, as God delivered us from all these plagues, not only, but from his wrath through Jesus. Of course he has. Now let's show that. Let my people go, God says tonight. Go and worship God. Amen. We pray, Lord, that you would Continue to get Egypt out of us, work in us to deny ourselves and to put on Christ, to follow him wherever he leads. Lord, we pray that you would one day lead us to the promised land, and in the meantime, may we love the promises. May we love the things of God and not of Egypt, the things of the kingdom of heaven. May we love your church, the apple of your eye, and the people of God are brothers in this militant Christianity, in this great enjoyment of the peace of God. May we go our way in peace, Lord, in a resolution to be your people. We've heard of the miracles. We have heard of the miracle of the gospel. Jesus Christ crucified and risen for sinners. Jesus Christ coming again. And that will be the final exodus, our going into glory. Amen.